Part Four of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. William Johnson and Jane Housden, executed for the murder of Spurling, a turnkey in the Old Bailey. It is not a little remarkable that two instances should have occurred within so short a space of time as nine months, in which the officers of the Crown should have fallen victims to the exertions which they were compelled to make in the discharge of their duties. The male prisoner in this case, William Johnson, was a native of Northamptonshire, where he served his time to a butcher, and, removing to London, he opened a shop at Newport Market but business not succeeding to his expectation, he pursued a variety of speculations, until at length he sailed to Gibraltar, where he was appointed a mate to one of the surgeons of the garrison. Having saved some money at this place, he came back to his native country, where he soon spent it, and then had recourse to the highway for a supply. Being apprehended in consequence of one of his robberies, he was convicted, but received a pardon. Previously to this he had been acquainted with Jane Housden, his fellow in crime, who had been tried and convicted of coining, but had obtained a pardon, but who, in September 1714, was again in custody for a similar offence. On the day that she was to be tried, and just as she was brought down to the bar of the old Bailey, Johnston called to see her. But Mr. Spurling, the head turnkey, telling him that he could not speak to her till her trial was ended, he instantly drew a pistol, and shot Spurling dead on the spot, in the presence of the court and all the persons attending to hear the trials, Mrs. Housden at the same time encouraging him in the perpetration of this singular murder. The event had no sooner happened than the judges, thinking it unnecessary to proceed on the trial of the woman for coining, ordered both the parties to be tried for the murder, and there being many witnesses to the deed, they were convicted and received sentence of death. From this time to that of their execution, which took place September 19, 1714, and even at the place of their death, they behaved as if they were wholly insensible of the enormity of the crime which they had committed, and, notwithstanding the publicity of their offence, they had the confidence to deny it to the last moment of their lives, nor did they show any signs of compunction for their former sins. After hanging the usual time, Johnson was hung in chains near Holloway, between Islington and Highgate. The Earl of Derwentwater, Lord Kenmure, the Earl of Winton, and others. Executed for treason. The circumstances attending the crime of these individuals, intimately connected as they were with the history of the royal family of England, must be too well known to require them to be minutely repeated. On the accession of George I to the throne of Great Britain, the question of the right of succession of King James III, as he was termed, which had long been secretly agitated, began to be referred to more openly, and his friends, finding themselves in considerable force in Scotland, sent an invitation to him in France, where he had taken refuge to join them, for the purpose of making a demonstration, and of endeavouring to assume, by force, that which was denied him as of right. The noblemen, whose names appear at the head of this article, were not the least active in their endeavours to support the title of the pretender by enlisting men under his standard, and their proceedings, although conducted with all secrecy, were soon made known to the government. The necessary steps were immediately taken for quelling the anticipated rebellion. 
and many persons were apprehended on suspicion of secretly aiding the rebels, and were committed to jail. Meanwhile the Earl of Mar, the chief supporter of the Pretender, was in open rebellion at the head of an army of three thousand men, which was rapidly increasing, marching from town to town in Scotland, proclaiming the Pretender as King of England and Scotland by the title of James the Third. An attempt was made by stratagem to surprise the castle of Edinburgh, and with this object some of the king's soldiers were base enough to receive a bribe to admit those of the Earl of Mar, who were, by means of ladders or of rope, to scale the walls and surprise the guard. But the Lord Justice Clerk, having some suspicion of the treachery, seized the guilty, and many of them were executed. The rebels were greatly chagrined at this failure of their attempt, and the French king, Louis the Fourteenth, from whom they hoped for assistance, dying about this time, the leaders became disheartened, and contemplated the abandonment of their project, until their king could appear in person among them. They were aided, however, by the discontent which showed itself in another quarter. In Northumberland the spirit of rebellion was fermented by Thomas Forster, then one of the members of Parliament for that county, who, being joined by several noblemen and gentlemen, attempted to seize the large and commercial town of Newcastle, but was driven back by the friends of the government. Forster now set up the standard of the Pretender, and proclaimed him the lawful King of Great Britain and Scotland, wherever he went, and eventually joining the Scotch rebels, he marched with them to Preston, in Lancashire. They were there attacked by Generals Carpenter and Wills, who succeeded in routing them, and in making fifteen hundred persons prisoners, among whom were the Earl of Derwentwater, and Lord Widrington, English peers, and the Earls of Nithisdale, Winton, and Carnworth, Viscount Kenmore, and Lord Nairn, Scottish peers. These noblemen, with about three hundred more rebels, were conveyed to London, while the remainder taken at the Battle of Preston were sent to Liverpool and its adjacent towns. At Highgate the party intended for trial in London was met by a strong detachment of foot-guards, who tied them back to back, and placed two on each horse, and in this ignominious manner were they held up to the derision of the populace, the lords being conveyed to the tower, and the others to Newgate, and other prisons. The Earl of Mar, on the day of the battle, attempted to cross the Forth, but was prevented by a squadron of the British fleet, which had anchored off Edinburgh, and Sir John Mackenzie, on the part of the Pretender, having fortified the town of Inverness, Lord Lovett, at this time an adherent of the reigning monarch, but subsequently a friend to the cause of the Stuarts, for aiding whose rebellion in 1745 he was beheaded, armed his tenants, and drove him from his fortifications. The Pretender subsequently managed to elude the vigilance of the British ships appointed to prevent his landing, and crossing the Channel in a small French vessel, disembarked in Scotland with only six followers. But having obtained the assistance of a few half-armed Highlanders, on the ninth of January, 1716, he made a public entry into the Palace of Scone, the ancient place of coronation for the Scottish kings. He there assumed the functions of a king, and so much of the powers of royalty as he was able to secure, and issued a proclamation for his coronation. The Duke of Argyle at this time, with his army in winter quarters at Stirling, however, determined to attack the rebel forces, and, advancing upon them, they fled at his approach. The Pretender, having been encouraged to rebel by France, was in anticipation of receiving succour at the hands of the French king, and in the hope of some aid reaching him, he proceeded to Dundee, and thence to Montrose, 
where, soon rendered hopeless by receiving no news of the approach of the foreigners, he dismissed his adherents. The king's troops pursued and put several to death, but the pretender, accompanied by the Earl of Mar and some of the leaders of the rebellion, had the good fortune to get on board a ship lying before Montrose, and, in a dark night, put to sea, escaped the English fleet, and landed in France. The unfortunate noblemen, who had been secured, were, meanwhile, committed to the custody of the Keeper of the Tower, and the House of Commons unanimously agreed to impeach them, and expel Forster from his seat as one of their members, while the courts of common law proceeded with the trials of those of less note. The articles of impeachment being sent by the Commons, the Lords sat in judgment, Earl Cowper, the Lord Chancellor of England, being constituted Lord High Steward. All the peers who were charged, except the Earl of Winton, pleaded guilty to the indictment, but offered pleas of extenuation for their guilt, in hopes of obtaining mercy. In that of the Earl of Derwentwater, he suggested that the proceedings in the House of Commons, in impeaching him, were illegal. Proclamation was then made, and the Lord High Steward proceeded to pass sentence upon James Earl of Derwentwater, William Lord Widrington, William Earl of Nithisdale, Robert Earl of Carnworth, William Viscount Kenmure, and William Lord Nairn. His lordship, having detailed the circumstances attending their impeachment, and having answered the argumentative matter contained in their pleas, and urged in extenuation of their offences, proceeded to say, "'It is my duty to exhort your lordships to think of the aggravations, as well as the mitigations, if there be any, of your offences, and if I could have the least hopes that the prejudices of habit and education would not be too strong for the most earnest and charitable entreaties, I would beg you not to rely any longer on those directors of your consciences by whose conduct you have very probably been led into this miserable condition, in allusion to their lordships being members of the Roman Catholic Church, but that your lordships would be assisted by some of those pious and learned divines of the Church of England who have constantly borne that infallible mark of sincere Christians, universal charity." And now, my lords, nothing remains but that I pronounce upon you, and sorry I am that it falls to my lot to do it, that terrible sentence of the law, which must be the same that is usually given against the meanest offender of the like kind. The most ignominious and painful parts of it are usually remitted, by the grace of the Crown, to persons of your quality, but the law, in this case, being deaf to all distinctions of persons, requires, I should pronounce, and accordingly, it is adjudged by this court, that you, James Earl of Derwentwater, William Lord Widrington, William Earl of Nithisdale, Robert Earl of Carnworth, William Viscount Kenmure, and William Lord Nairn, and every of you, return to the prison of the tower from whence you came, from thence you must be drawn to the place of execution, when you come there you must be hanged by the neck, but not till you be dead for you must be cut down alive, then your bowels must be taken out and burnt before your faces, then your heads must be severed from your bodies, and your bodies divided each into four quarters, and these must be at the King's disposal, and God Almighty be merciful to your souls. After sentence thus passed, the Lords were remanded to the Tower, and on the 18th of February orders were sent to the Lieutenant of the Tower and the Sheriffs for their execution. Great solicitations were made in favour of them, 
which not only reached the court but the two houses of parliament and petitions were delivered in both which being supported occasioned debates that in the house of commons went no farther than to occasion a motion for adjournment so as to prevent any farther interposition there but the matter in the house of peers was carried on with more success where petitions were delivered and spoke to and it was carried by nine or ten voices that they should be received and read the question was also put whether the king had power to reprieve in case of impeachment and this being carried in the affirmative a motion was made to address his majesty to desire him to grant a reprieve to the lords under sentence but the movers only obtained this clause viz to reprieve such of the condemned lords as deserved his mercy and that the time of the respite should be left to his majesty's discretion the address having been presented his majesty replied that on this and other occasions he would do what he thought most consistent with the dignity of his crown and the safety of his people the great parties which had been made by the rebel lords as was said by the means of money and the rash expressions too common in the mouths of many of their friends as if the government did not dare to execute them did not a little contribute to hasten their execution for on the same day that the address was presented the twenty third of february it was resolved in council that the earl of derwentwater and the lord kenmure should be beheaded on the next day and the earl of nithisdale apprehending he should be included in the warrant succeeded in making his escape on the evening before in a woman's riding-hood supposed to have been conveyed to him by his mother on a visit on the morning of the twenty fourth of february three detachments of the lifeguards went from whitehall to tower hill and having taken their stations round the scaffold the two lords were brought from the tower at ten o'clock and being received by the sheriffs at the bar were conducted to the transport office on tower hill at the expiration of about an hour the earl of derwentwater sent word that he was ready on which sir john fryer one of the sheriffs walked before him to the scaffold and when there told him he might have what time he pleased to prepare himself for death his lordship desired to read a paper which he had written the substance of which was that he was sorry for having pleaded guilty that he acknowledged no king but james the third for whom he had an inviolable affection that the kingdom would never be happy until the ancient constitution was restored and he wished that his death might contribute to that end his lordship professed to die in the roman catholic faith and said at the end of his speech which he delivered that if that prince who then governed had given him life he should have thought himself obliged never more to take up arms against him he then read some prayers and kneeled to see how the block would fit him and having told the executioner that he forgave him as well as all his enemies he desired him to strike when he should repeat the words sweet jesus for the third time he immediately proceeded to prepare himself for the blow of the axe and having placed his neck so that it might be fairly struck he said sweet jesus receive my spirit sweet jesus be merciful unto me sweet jesus and was proceeding in his prayer when his head was severed from his body at one blow the executioner then took it up and carrying it to the four corners of the scaffold said behold the head of a traitor god save king george the body was directly wrapped in black baize and being carried to a coach was delivered to the friends of the deceased and the scaffold having been cleared fresh baize was put on the block and new sawdust strewed so that no blood should appear 
Lord Kenmure was then conducted to the place of execution. His lordship was a Protestant, and was attended by two clergymen. He declined saying much to them, however, telling one of them that he had prudential reasons for not delivering his sentiments, which were supposed to arise from his regard to Lord Carnworth, who was his brother-in-law, and who was then interceding for the royal mercy. Lord Kenmure, having finished his devotions, declared that he forgave the executioner, to whom he made a present of eight guineas. He was attended by a surgeon, who drew his finger over that part of the neck where the blow was to be struck, and, being executed as Lord Derwentwater had been, his body was delivered to the care of an undertaker. George, Earl of Winton, not having pleaded guilty with the other lords, was brought to his trial on the 15th of March, when the principal matter urged in his favour was that he had surrendered at Preston in consequence of a promise from General Wills to grant him his life, in answer to which it was sworn that no promise of mercy was made, but that the rebels surrendered at discretion. The circumstances of the Earl of Winton having left his house with fourteen or fifteen of his servants well mounted and armed, his joining Earl Carnworth and Lord Kenmure, his proceeding with the rebels through the various stages of their march, and his surrendering with the rest, were fully proved, notwithstanding which his counsel moved in arrest of judgment, but the plea on which this motion was founded being thought insufficient, his peers unanimously found him guilty. The Lord High Steward then pronounced sentence on him, after having addressed him in forcible terms, in the same manner as he had sentenced the other peers. The Earls of Winton and Nithisdale afterwards found means to escape out of the tower, and Messrs. Forster and Mackintosh escaped from Newgate, but it was supposed that motives of mercy and tenderness in the Prince of Wales, afterwards George the Second, favoured the flight of all these gentlemen. This rebellion occasioned the untimely death of many other persons. Five were executed at Manchester, six at Wigan, and eleven at Preston. But a considerable number was brought to London, and being arraigned in the Court of Exchequer, most of them pleaded guilty and suffered the utmost rigour of the law. James Shepherd executed for high treason. This is a very singular case of treason, for though the crime for which Shepherd suffered was committed three years after the rebellion was quelled, yet the same misjudged opinions urged this youth to enthusiasm in the cause of the pretender as those which actuated the former offenders. It is still more singular that he, being neither a Scotchman born, nor in any way interested in the mischiefs which he contemplated, should, unsolicited, volunteer in so dangerous a cause. James Shepherd was the son of Thomas Shepherd, Glover, in Southwark, but his father dying when he was about five years of age, he was sent to school in Hertfordshire, where his uncle, Dr. Hinchcliffe, removed him to Salisbury, where he remained at school three years. Being at Salisbury at the time of the rebellion, he imbibed the principles from his schoolfellows, many of whom were favourers of the pretender, and he was confirmed in his sentiments by reading some pamphlets which were then put into his hands. When he quitted Salisbury, Dr. Hinchcliffe put him in apprentice to Mr. Scott, a coach-painter in Devonshire Street, Bishopsgate, and he continued in this situation about fourteen months, when he was apprehended for the crime which cost him his life. Shepherd, having conceived the idea that it would be a praiseworthy action to kill the king, wrote a letter which he intended for a non-juring minister of the name of Leake, but, mistaking the spelling, he directed it to the Reverend Mr. Heath. The letter was in the following terms. Sir, from the many discontents visible throughout this kingdom, I infer that if the prince now reigning should be by death removed, 
our king being here, he might be settled on his throne without much loss of blood. For the more ready effecting of this, I propose that, if any gentleman will pay for my passage into Italy, and if our friends will entrust one so young with letters of invitation to his majesty, I will, on his arrival, smite the usurper in his palace. In this confusion, if sufficient forces may be raised, his majesty may appear. If not, he may retreat or conceal himself till a fitter opportunity. Neither is it presumptuous to hope that this may succeed, if we consider how easy it is to cut the thread of human life, how great the confusion the death of a prince occasions in the most peaceful nation, and how mutinous the people are, how desirous of a change. But we will suppose the worst, that I am seized, and by torture examined. Now that this may endanger none but myself, it will be necessary that the gentlemen who defray my charges to Italy leave England before my departure, that I be ignorant of His Majesty's abode, that I lodge with some Whig, that you abscond, and that this be communicated to no one. But, be the event as it will, I can expect nothing less than a most cruel death, which that I may the better support, it will be requisite that, from my arrival till the attempt, I every day receive the holy sacrament from one who shall be ignorant of the design. James Shepherd. Having carried it to Mr. Leake's house, he called again for an answer, but he was apprehended, and carried before Sir John Fryer, a magistrate. When he was brought to his trial, he behaved in the most firm and composed manner, and after the evidence was given and the jury had found him guilty of high treason, he was asked why sentence should not be passed on him according to the law, when he said, he could not hope for mercy from a prince whom he would not own. The recorder then proceeded to pass sentence on him, in pursuance of which he was executed at Tyburn on the 17th of March, 1718. He was attended by a non-juring clergyman up to the time of his execution, between whom and the ordinary the most indecent disputes arose, extending even up to the time of his arriving at the scaffold, when the latter quitted the field, and left the other to instruct and pray with the malefactor as he might think proper. End of part four.